Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. This is volume six, six episodes already. That's awesome. I am once again joined by my regular co-host for this series, Mike. Mike, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Excellent. Welcome back. And I, we are once again joined by my other co-host for the Dana Buckler Show, Ashley. Ashley, how are you today? I'm doing great. Wonderful, wonderful. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to have you both back on the show. Uh, we got some fantastic feedback from the last time the two of you were were on an episode of the 20th Century Movie Club. So, you know, there's no time like the present to have you both back as quick as possible. Okay, you both know the rules for the show. We recommend movies that were released before the year 2000. We're going to do things a little bit differently this time in that I am personally not going to be making three recommendations. I wanted to afford both of you a little more time to discuss your films, and I will, of course, add my commentary as it applies. So, Ashley, since you are the guest on this episode, we will turn the first pick of Volume 6 over to you. The floor is yours. Okay, so I am going to start with a film that I had considered doing the first time I joined you guys, and it just kind of was at the the cutoff there, because when I started to think about, okay, 20th century, if we're recommending these to people to go back and watch, or maybe they've never seen before, what are the movies that were, you know, important to me during that time. And so I actually rewatched this last night because I wanted to make sure that it still held up because this was a film I was absolutely obsessed with from like the age of like 12 to, you know, 25. And now at 35, still love it. And it is going to be another Ethan Hawke film because we're going to keep him going um, in the 20th Century <laughs> Movie Club. But um, it is the 1994 reality bites. Um, So this movie, for those of you who've never seen it or don't remember it, it basically is a film that tells the story of three recent college grads and one almost grad. And it's all about, I mean, just simply it's an exploration into the time period right after you finish school, which can be a really difficult and a really scary time period because you're you kind of get slapped in the face with what adulthood is. So if you had a traditional collegiate experience like I did, where you're not actually having to work all the time, and you can just kind of focus on your studies, and then you've got all these ideas and idealism that you come out with, and then all of a sudden you have bills and you have to get your first job. And it's just about that really rough time period that that can happen. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about this film, and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit, as we talk about it, this movie captured grunge, grunge culture in a really interesting way. And it also captured the whole Gen X um, experience. So, you know, the Gen Xers, because it's in 94. So we're still in the wake of the, you know, the AIDS crisis. That's still very much um, a relevant thing. We still are in the transition from a really conservative political climate all of a sudden into the Clinton years. And it was just a really interesting time period in a time capsule. I'd be curious to know what you guys think about it. And as we kind of get through it, I have a couple fun facts about it, too. So, Mike, Dana, what do you guys think about Reality Bites? Well, I'll, I'll go first and I'll be the proverbial party pooper and admit that I've actually <laughs> never seen this movie. And I think I can answer why, because I'm going through my mind as to why I've never seen this film. Very familiar with it. But when the movie came out in 1994, I was 16 years old. And it just at the time was clearly not a film that was geared towards myself or, or anyone in my age group. It was, dare I say, it was a, a few years ahead of me. 
And I think I, I, I purposely didn't see it back then because I didn't think I was going to identify with what was happening on the screen. And as the years have gone by, I just never have gotten around to watching it, even though I'm very familiar with the cast, the director, the fantastic soundtrack that the movie has. But it's one that has just sort of escaped me. So I know that when uh, when Mike and I, the last episode, when uh, we had Adam Risky on the show, there was a, a couple movies that I had to add to the list. This is one that I'm going to have to add. So I'm going to just say that it's it's certainly on the, the must-watch list. And like we talked about in the last episode, we're, we have been kicking around the idea of doing a, a couple follow-up episodes where we just discuss the movies that we have not seen yet. And this will certainly be on the first episode that we do. So unfortunately, I, I don't have any more to say about the film than that, but I will certainly pass it along to Mike. I think Reality Bites is a good recommendation. It's an important movie for people of our vintage. Um, I'm a couple years older than you, Dana. Um, and so I was a bit more of the target audience for this movie. The one thing I will say for me is, have you all ever just, you've seen a movie, you've watched a movie, and you can look and you can objectively appreciate the quality of the movie, but for whatever reason, something about the movie misfires with you? That's me with Reality Bites. The last episode I mentioned, one of my recommendations was Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming, and that is my Reality Bites. That's the one that hit for me and had the same effect on me that Reality Bites has had on you, Ashley, where you were talking about how it really sort of captured kind of a lot about where you were at the time and how you felt at the time and that sort of thing. I think the performances are fantastic. Winona Ryder's always great. Our love of Ethan Hawke is uh, well established. I think Ben Stiller is really good in this movie. I think he brings uh, interesting layers to the movie. What I don't like is I, I don't love the way the story is put together for me. It, it's one of those movies where as much as I like the quality of Ethan Hawke's performance and without kind of getting into spoilers, I'm supposed to also sort of fall in love with him as a character and I didn't for me he just kind of comes across uh as and and maybe you're right Ashley in that it does capture that grunge culture perfectly because I being a 90s kid I I totally get the kind of being an edgy asshole for edgy asshole's sake but that's sort of how Ethan Hawke came across to me I think it's a good recommendation I think it's a it's perfect for this series uh it's just a movie that doesn't quite work for me. I know one of these days, Ashley and I are going to be completely simpatico on a movie that we recommend, but this is not the one uh, to start with. Well, you know, if I had been on with you guys and Adam, I, I I would have absolutely agree with you about Kicking and Screaming because that is a phenomenal film. So that is an absolutely great recommendation. But let me just say, I, mean, I understand what you're saying. So Ethan Hawke's character, his name is uh, Troy Dyer, and I have married Troy Dyer. I know neither of you guys know my husband, but like I only dated him and and my husband is identical to what he is like. Like imagine him grown up at 35 with a real job. That's my husband. And so I think that, you know, maybe I'm just partial to that type of person. I mean, you remember how in our last episode, uh, Mike, you were talking about how when we talked about pump up the volume about how you used to say like talk hard all the time when you were when you were young. This movie is that for me because there's this line from this movie. It's um. It's a, a line where he, 
Ethan Hawke picks up the phone and he says, hello, you've reached the winter of our discontent. And that was my answering machine message for like years after I saw this film. I mean, so it's, I don't know. I, I just think, I think what's really interesting about it is just its approach to the realities of the world. You know, there's this, uh, there's this play called Avenue Q and I don't know if either of you guys have ever seen it, but there's a song in it that's called, uh, I wish I could go back to college. And the whole song is about how great it would be to go back, you know, and you could just be on the quad and you can, there's a line that says, you know, I could fuck my TA. Like, you know, it's just about how like easy undergrad years can, can be and how awful like that time period is. And I, I didn't go through a lot of those typical, um, kind of learning curves that people are supposed to hit. I was really had a really good head on my shoulders, like all through high school. I mean, I didn't really go through a lot of those, uh, you know, those big pitfalls that people kind of go through growing up. But I did after I graduated from college, I had no idea what to do with myself. And some of that was because Hurricane Katrina had just happened um, in New Orleans. And some of that was just because I was super immature at the age of 22 and 23. But I just I related to this when I was a teenager, I related to it when I was that age. And I just want to say one one quick thing about Ethan Hawke, um, just for those of you who are Ethan Hawke fans like Mike and I, I did not know this, but when enduring research for this, apparently the only reason Ethan Hawke was cast in this movie is because Renon- Winona Ryder would not do it unless he was involved. She stipulated in her contract that the only way she would star is if he could star with her because his kind of his fame from uh, Dead Poet Society had completely faded by the point that this film took place. And this really resurged his career because it made him, you know, this huge kind of, you know, the guy that every girl wanted uh, because a lot of girls did fall in and guys too, I'm sure everybody fell in love with him. So I thought that was interesting. And also it's set here in Houston. When we first moved here, uh, my husband and I drove right there in Montrose. If you're here in Houston, you can go drive by the house and there's a article every year about, you know, the anniversary of Reality Bites because it was a big deal. But, you know, I, I get what you guys are saying, but Dana, definitely watch it. The soundtrack is great. And Ben Stiller's good in it, but more than that, he does a great job directing it, um, which I think is which I think is really uh, neat considering kind of his career, the turn it took. So. All right. Uh, Mike, any closing thoughts on Reality Bites? Yeah, just a just a couple quick things. One, good call on Avenue Q. If you haven't seen Avenue Q, try and seek it out. It's it's a great, great musical. Uh, secondly, I also kind of like what you said as far as this beginning a career resurgence for Ethan Hawke, because I do think what we get in Troy is almost a dress rehearsal for Jesse in Before, in Before Sunrise. Sunrise. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we get Jesse, who I like a lot better as a character, without him playing Troy in this. So even though I don't love this movie, I think it's an important movie in Ethan Hawke's career. I think it's a very important movie in Ben Stiller's career, especially in terms of his directing. So I think even if you're like me and you don't love it, it's a good movie to watch. If you haven't seen it, I definitely think you should check it out because it's one that everybody should probably see at least once because we've all been in our 20s, aimless and not sure what we're doing with ourselves. And the movie does capture that feeling incredibly well. Mike, your uh, first pick on the Ethan Hawke movie club, excuse me, on the uh, 20th Century <laughs> Movie Club. Do you not hate on Ethan Hawke? I'm Dana. not hate. I'm who's hating? Who's hating? Uh, listen, listen. Hey, we got a hater. Mike and I got a co-hater on Twitter who who I adore. He's a great listener. He he's somebody I'm a I'm a good Twitter friend with. But he was he was hating on us with some gifs about Ethan Hawke this week. So. I was I was, was. I, true. I, I was I was back in the back in the shadows watching that unfold. <laughs> so, so all right, all kidding aside, Mike, your first pick of the episode. <laughs> 
So I actually wanted to go with something uh, a bit different because it, while it is a movie, I mean, it was released theatrically. It, it is a movie. It's also a, a bit of an unusual pick, but I think it's a worthy one, especially because right now it's readily available for streaming. And that is what I think is the pinnacle of the theatrical concert film, which is uh, 1984's Jonathan Demi talking heads concert film. Stop making sense. Now, if, any of you haven't seen this movie, I would almost say you don't even have to be a Talking Heads fan to watch this movie because the energy that the band puts forth in this concert and the way in which the very dynamic way in which Demi directs this movie really elevates it above just a normal concert film. You know, so many concert films. First of all, I think the theatrical concert film has kind of become... A bit of it's kind of fallen by the wayside a bit. I mean, every once in a while, you'll get some teen pop star uh, that, you know, like uh, Justin Bieber or Miley Cyrus, who will get a big concert film release. Uh, but for the most part, the the idea of the theatrical concert film, which was a much more common occurrence in the 70s and 80s, has kind of fallen by the wayside. And I wonder, to a certain extent, if at least for the really talented artists who would do these, they kind of looked and went, I'm not going to be able to do it better than Stop Making Sense. So I'm not even going to try. So many concert films are either just a camera is placed statically or the camera's right there on the stage. But what makes Stop Making Sense so amazing is the way Demi shot it. He shot it over four nights. And on two of those nights, he put a stationary camera on one side of the stage. And then the next night, a stationary camera on the other side of the stage. One night was all wide angle shots. Uh, and then it was all edited together. And what it really does is put you in this concert venue without feeling like you're watching it through a camera. You just feel like you're there. And then on top of that, you've got a band that is performing at the height of their abilities. Uh, David Byrne is just all over the stage in this thing. He alone, put it on mute if you don't like talking heads and just watch what he does through this concert and the way he moves and the way he uh, has energy. The man never sits still for a single second in this entire concert. Some part of his body is always moving. This thing is is fantastic. If you are a talking heads fan, I would hope you've already seen it. But if you haven't, you need to rectify that because this this show, this movie is is really as good as cinematic concert films ever get. Have either of you guys seen this one? I'll take that first. I have not, although I'm very familiar with the Talking Heads. And to me, when I think of, you know, great music that came out in the in the early to mid 80s, the Talking Heads is typically the top of my list of, of, of really quintessential bands of that era, knowing full well they did produce a lot of good music in the 70s. But I have not seen this, and I am someone who likes the concert documentary. There's too many to mention right now, but off the top of my head, U2 Rattle and Hum, which is one of my favorite concert documentaries, although that is not just a concert. That is completely all over the place. But no, it's it's definitely one that I, I've heard of, but I have not seen, and, and regrettably, regrettably, but I will rectify that uh, ASAP. Ashley, yeah, I, I actually, I, I actually love that film. I, I haven't seen it in a very, very long time. I, I'm not a Talking Heads fan, um, but I was forced to listen to them a lot growing up because um, my my aunt is 12 years older than me, and she is like my my older sister, and so I listen to a lot of. I have this weird um, amalgam of like 90s stuff and 80s stuff because of her. Um, so you know, I've listened to. I mean, the album. What album are they promoting? That is it. Speaking in tongues. 
Is that what uh, they're yes. promoting in that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a great film. Um, I, I think, though, that what you're talking about, about the concert film, I'm actually really excited that you pick this because I think that what we're going through right now, I have made no, um, I've not been shy at all on Twitter about how I feel about Bohemian Rhapsody and the movie that just, uh, you know, won all those Oscars. Um, And I think that one of the things people talk about so much in that film that they love is the concert footage at the end. And I think what's interesting is I think there's a there's a genuine desire for audiences to see things like that, because that's why people got so excited about that film is because of the little mini concert that they do, because they do almost the full 20 minute set uh, from Live Aid that Queen did. And so I think there is an audience for that. And, and you know, and you're talking about this one, because this one is beautifully shot. I mean, Jonathan Demi is an amazing director. And so I think it's absolutely beautifully shot. But I mean, there's a lot of others from this time period. I mean, there's the Queen at Wembley in 86. There's Madonna's Truth or Dare tour in 91. That's a fantastic film. Um, and this is kind of out of our purview, but the band performed during our time period. But Nirvana Live at Paramount, if you're a Nirvana fan, which I'm a huge Nirvana fan, if you're a Nirvana fan at all, that came out in 2011, but it's concerts that were shot, you know, in the 90s. I mean, I think there's a big, again, I think there's a big audience for this. I mean, one thing I will say as a critique is, You know, there's a lot of close ups and things like that, that I think were that aren't as authentic as I like, because it's clear that they were done on reshoots. And I prefer my concert films to be more of the actual experience than the piece together experience from the, you know, the editing and the the reshooting. But but that's a very small, a very small complaint, because I I think it's really beautiful. I think it's a great film. And and I agree with you. I'm like I said, I'm not a Talking Heads fan, but I really enjoyed it because it's just good filmmaking. So one of the things, because uh, I'm glad Ashley brought up other concert films, because it just gives me a chance to throw out a couple of other recommendations, because the, the art isn't dead. Uh, one that I do want to recommend, if you can track it down, there was a Broadway musical called Passing Strange that is really, it's a musical, but it's also a concert. It's all music. It's basically a rock concert. And for the final show, they had, they brought Spike Lee in to film it. And he films it much in the same way that Jonathan Demi does. Uh, it's very obvious if you've seen any Spike Lee movies, and there will be Spike Lee recommendations on this show, I promise you that. He's clearly a musical geek at heart. He loves musicals. He loves music. And so he shoots it in a phenomenal way. And then also very recently, uh, Springsteen on Broadway on Netflix is also a, a really well done one, as well as The Last Waltz from 1976, which There's was the band's. Sorry, what was that, Ashley? That's Martin Scorsese, right? Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that one's also good. What I really like about Stop Making Sense is it's not a concert documentary. Like you mentioned, Dana, Rattle and Hum has a lot of interviews with the band. Stop Making Sense is just the concert. And the, the, the way it starts is essentially because it's hard to spoil it. I mean, I guess I could read the whole set list, but I'm not really spoiling anything here. Uh, David Byrne, it starts with David Byrne doing Psycho Killer with just a boombox. And then each song over the next succession of songs, a new member of the band joins the stage until it finally culminates 25 minutes in with burning down the house. And it's, for me, as good of a 20, 25 minute segment of movie making as you're really ever going to see. So I just wanted to add those couple of things, but but that's all. Very good pick so far. I, unfortunately, I am technically 0-2 on the actual watch list of seeing these. So uh, hopefully I'll, I'll, uh, I'll improve my score with the next movie. Ashley, your second pick of the episode? 
So I apologize because I think you might be over three, <laughs> but this one, because this one is kind of a random pick, but I, I know that part of this is kind of maybe uncovering some of the, the movies that, that existed during this time period. And, and I apologize if neither of you have seen it. Well, actually, I take that back. I don't apologize because this is a film you should, you should see, but this is a movie that was directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, who is one of my favorite directors. Uh, he directed Last Tango in Paris. He directed The Last emperor during our time period. And then, of course, right outside of ours, one of my very favorite films, uh, 2004's The Dreamers. And so all of his movies deal a lot with beauty and sex and sexual awakening. And that is certainly true of the film I've selected today, which is the 1996 film Stealing Beauty. So Stealing Beauty premiered at Cannes in 1996. And it was actually Liv Tyler's very first starring role. But she joined an incredible cast because this movie also stars Joseph Fiennes, a very uh, young, still Jeremy Irons, and a very young Rachel Weisz, um, along with some others. And so it's a fantastic cast, and it is all about Liv Tyler's character by the name of Lucy, who travels to Italy um, at the age of 19 to visit the uh, friends of her recently deceased mother. And she is going because her mother was a poet and she finds a poem that says basically that her father is not her father. And so she goes on search of trying to figure out who her father is while spending this uh, time period, this summer in, in Italy. It is a really beautiful film. Um, this is a film that I, I have to say just a little bit of a public service announcement here if you are going to watch it. It isn't beloved by critics. It only is about uh, 55% on Rotten Tomatoes. So critics were very mixed about it. But I personally think it, it's beautiful despite it not being well received because the atmosphere in this film is as important if not more important than the story itself. Because some of the critique that you'll see if you read about it is that the story itself kind of meanders some but you, you can't help but just be taken in by the cinematography and by the performances as well, because uh, Jeremy Irons and, and Liv Tyler both are wonderful in this. And so, like like I said, it's just this beautiful exp exploration into sexuality, beauty, the sexual awakening of Lucy, and um, Italy itself. If you've ever been to Siena, Italy, which is where it's set, which I have, it is absolutely gorgeous. And Siena, Italy is a character in and of itself. Um, and I think it's a film very much worth seeing. So have either of you guys ever ever seen it i am over three mike <laughs> uh i saw stealing beauty in i want to say 97 uh but i haven't seen it since then uh so i don't remember a ton about it but i have seen it i love this pick though because you're absolutely right ashley part of this job or part of this show is to we could sit here and recommend raiders of the lost ark and back to the future and jurassic park and all these things but part of what's great about this is trying to uncover some of these other movies that were even you know big at the time and fell apart or maybe weren't even big at the time and are worthy of a reevaluation. And this is a perfect example of that because I do think a lot of people would probably consider it, you know, quote unquote, and I'm making air quotes here, uh, lesser Ber Bertolucci. I remember thinking above and beyond all else, Liv Tyler was absolutely stunning in this movie. I, I, I and I, well, I can picture the box art i can picture the poster i can picture parts of her performance because she just was she was radiant and and pretty much a perfect bertolucci was always very good at finding the perfect vehicles for 
vehicle's a bad word, but I can't think of a better one for actors and actresses that he was trying to use to convey what he wanted to say. And she, I would argue that Eva Green in The Dreamers is kind of the the pinnacle of, of that for Bertolucci, but Liv Tyler's certainly up there. She was just perfect for this movie. And I, I think I remember it being good. I, I, I don't remember, unfortunately, much more about it than that. But I love that you recommended it because I think it's a perfect recommendation for this show. Well, and, and just to add to that, you know, I I also rewatched this one in preparing for, for the podcast just again to kind of, you know, gauge how it's how it's aged. And there's definitely some pieces of this, as with them, reality bites that are very 90s filmmaking. Um, and there are those moments, specifically the title credits uh, for this film. I would say, please make it through that because it's a little strange and completely out of touch with what the rest of the film winds up being like, because uh, there's this Liz Fair song that kind of overlays this really strangely uh you know handheld camera shot of Liv Tyler but the rest of the movie is absolutely wonderful and you know and you mentioned Eva Green I mean I I think that one of the things Bertolucci does so well is he he shoots women beautifully he understands women and he doesn't overtly sexualize them while allowing them to have these moments of sexual empowerment that a lot of directors um they can't find that a lot of male directors have trouble finding that fine line and and he does it really well because think about the dreamers i mean nothing is a more of a hyper sexualized movie than that movie and i wouldn't say he just is able to find vehicles for his female characters though because like michael pitt for example in the dreamers another just fantastic use of an actor that i don't know if since i've seen him be as good as he was in the dreamers and i'll say the same for Liv tyler i love Liv tyler always have i I've made no um, qualms on this podcast about how much of a geek I am. She will always be one of my, you know, one of my Lord of the Rings actresses. I mean, she's Arwen forever, but she's fantastic in in this movie. And like you said, just just gorgeous. I mean, there are scenes that are just silent where he's just shooting her and she looks like a I mean, she looks like a painting or a sculpture and she's she's wonderful. So I think it's definitely uh, I think it's definitely something to check out. And it's also, um, you know, just a really beautiful film. So. Mike, I'll turn it over to you for your second pick of the episode. One of the things I try and do when I pick these movies is, is I try and shake it up because it's it's so would be so easy to just fall into a rut of recommending, you know, starting it like movie A. I, I mentioned this a couple episodes ago when talking about the Coen brothers. You know, we could literally recommend a Coen brothers movie every episode. And this next director is one who I could do the exact same thing for. He's he's one of I stated John Woo's my favorite director. This would be my second favorite director, and that's John Carpenter. I could absolutely start at the beginning of Carpenter's career and just make a recommendation every week. I'm not going to, and I'm actually going to skip some of his more major movies, what what people would consider his more major movies. Uh, I'm not going to talk about The Thing or Big Trouble in Little China yet. The one I want to recommend is one that I think is for a lot of people feels like a bit of an outlier for him. But if you watch the movie, it's really not. It's really a, a, a perfect Carpenter movie. It's just because it's a little more of a romantic sci-fi than a horror sci-fi or a comedy. People tend to feel like it's not as as it's lesser Carpenter. And I would contend and argue that it's not. It's actually top tier Carpenter right up there with the thing. And that is uh, 1984's Starman starring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, Starman is a movie about a, an alien who crashes on Earth and ends up taking the shape 
of Karen Allen's deceased husband convinces her to uh, sort of help him get across to where he needs to be. I think it's, if I recall correctly, it's New Mexico. Didn't have a chance to just rewatch it, uh, but get to either New Mexico or Arizona so that he can be picked up by a ship. It sounds very E.T. It sounds very much like an E.T. knockoff. And frankly, when the movie came out, there was a bit of a, a, a knock on it for that. But it's not. What it really is, is this very beautiful, moving uh, love story uh, anchored by two of, I think, the best performances that you will see in a movie in the 80s. Jeff Bridges actually got an Oscar nomination for it. Uh, the first of, or I think it's the first, but if not, one of many in his career. And for those who are younger and do not know Karen Allen, uh, I kind of envy you uh, the ability to go back and go through 80s movies and watch Karen Allen movies because she was always somebody who just managed to single-handedly elevate every role that she was in and every movie that she was in. So this is one that I think is is top tier Carpenter that somehow has fallen a bit by the wayside. You know, Carpenter movies are always strongly or not strongly, but not appreciated when they come out. And then 10, 15 years later, they get reevaluated. And I feel like this is one of the ones that is still waiting for that reevaluation, that big. I know Shout Factory just released a nice Blu-ray of it, but is really waiting for that reevaluation so that it can take its place in the pantheon of Carpenter movies. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is Carpenter almost always does his own score. He doesn't in this one. Jack Nietzsche does. And he puts out possibly a better score than even Carpenter's scores. The, the score alone makes this movie worth watching. It is one of, I think, the best movie scores in the from the 80s. Uh, so have either of you seen this one? Yes, I have seen this. It's been 20 something years, so I have very vague memories of it. But I'm going to I want to immediately ask a question because something struck me about this particular pick and it has to do with Carpenter putting aside Dark Star and a couple TV movies. Every John Carpenter film leading up to Starman was a hard R rated movie. And Starman is a film that is rated PG. And I'm wondering, Mike, if you have some thoughts on Carpenter's decision to sort of, I don't want to use the term family friendly, but to tell a completely different and a completely subvert, I think, John Carpenter fans expectations during that time on, on this particular film. Sure. So part of it was this isn't a true John Carpenter movie. You know, Carpenter was one of those 70s auteurs, came up writing and directing most of his own movies. This was more or less a work for hire project. This had been uh, bounced around through several different screenwriters and several different uh, directors. Uh, Adrian Lynn or Adrian Lyne had been attached at one point. I, I believe a Dana Buckler favorite, John Batham, had been attached at one Absolutely. point. Uh, he, <laughs> and the Adam's story is actually interesting because he was all set to direct it. He was ready to go. E.T. came out and he went, fuck it, I'm going to go direct work. <laughs> yeah. So this this was um, this was really a, a movie that Carpenter felt like he needed a hit. He needed to come in and, and get a movie out. And so he was working from a script that wasn't uh, his own. And that's part of the reason I love it so much. Okay. Because as we all know, the thing had been a 
massive failure for him. And, and the thing had really been a bit of a blank check movie for him. He had really tried to uh, turn some of the cachet from from some of his previous movies into that kind of one of his dream projects. He followed it up with Christine, which was also a bit of a work for hire project. Great movie, but also a bit of a box office failure. And so he really felt at the time he needed a hit. And so what we have is a movie that is really just not a John Carpenter movie at all. It's not his script. Uh, there were a lot of other directors attached. And so he keeps it pretty close to what he was working with. That's why it was family friendly. That's why it wasn't like a lot of his other movies. But what I think is so great about it is he manages to still make it uniquely Carpenter. This movie could be terrible. It could be an, an E.T. ripoff. It could be just a low-budget, garbage E.T. knockoff that's maybe slightly one step above Mac and me. But <laughs> Carpenter being the one to direct it, he brings his his unique sensibilities and his, let's be honest, incredibly talented visual style uh, to the movie. And I think that's really what elevates it. And he was also smart enough to know, as Carpenter always has been, when you have good direct or when you have good actors who are doing good work, for the most part, just get the hell out of their way and let them do their jobs. And Bridges, Karen Allen, Charles Martin Smith, basically playing the Peter Coyote role, if you will, in this, they all do really, really solid work. And Carpenter's smart enough to let them breathe in the scenes where they need to. The the interactions between Bridges and Karen Allen are so good and so that's the word I'm looking for, soft, sensitive, compared to, say, the very, very masculine, manly interactions from the thing, the tense masculine. And that just, to me, is really a testament to just how talented Carpenter was and how, for so many of his movies, they just weren't appreciated at the time because he was always 10 years ahead of where he was supposed to be. I've only seen the movie one time, and it was at least 20 years ago. I don't have any negative thoughts about the film, but it is certainly one that I need to rewatch. So, Ashley, I'll turn it over to you for your thoughts on Starman. Ugh. Okay. All right. Let's <laughs> uh, let's let's just say that the only positive thing I like about Starman is the David Bowie song because I absolutely hate this movie. I'm so sorry, Mike, and That's to fine. all of you Starman fans out there. I love John Carpenter. Let me go ahead and just get that out of the way. I think he's amazing. Uh, I think Halloween. I think the thing. I think everything that he, most everything that he touches, um, with very rare exceptions, I find to be wonderful. But this, for me, this movie for me is as much of a problem as when Wes Craven directed Music of the Heart in 1999, if anybody remembers that movie. Either of you remember that movie with oh, yeah. Meryl Streep? Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, in Sync sang the main song. Um, yeah, I had a problem with that one too <laughs> because I just think that Carpenter, I think Craven, I think that they are just so much better when they are dealing with material that lends itself to their, their directing sensibilities and this was not an example. I, I think that Jeff Bridges is great. I think Karen Allen is great. But, you know, you said this could have been, you know, an E.T. ripoff. I mean, I think it is. I think it's him trying to be, you know, Spielberg. Uh, you know, Dana, you asked the question about, you know, which I think is a wonderful question to think about, you know, going from that R rating to that PG rating. I mean, this this movie 
absolutely pulls on a model that was done a lot more successfully by other people. And I could never get that out of my head when watching it because I didn't see this for the first time until like the late 90s, early 2000s was the first time I ever saw this. And when I saw it, I had to check to see what year it came out because I thought it was so derivative of all these other wonderful movies that had come before it and that had come after it. And I don't know. I, I just think it's kind of just a lame sci-fi film because I love sci-fi, but give me something weird in sci-fi. I mean, you know, it, it kind of, you know, devolving into this, you know, sweet kind of, you know, blase, whatever love story. I just think it's I just think it's really boring. And I I think it's the worst that Carpenter did. And I hate the fact that it's in his, you know, his directorial anthology because I just oh, I'm so sorry. I just really don't like this one. If I could say one thing real quick, you know, I'm I'm going to defend uh, the Wes Craven film you mentioned. Not, not. You're going to defend the music of the heart. I'm going to defend his choice to make that movie. I'm going to defend his choice to make that movie because I am of the mindset that Craven, I think Craven hated the moniker horror master. I think he, I think that was something that he loathed uh, quite a bit. And, you know, I did a pretty extensive retrospective with writer director Jim Hemphill where we talked about, you know, Craven sort of kind of getting stuck in the rut of, of doing the horror films and when he did them when he did the horror films he he, he did them really well i'm going to defend his choice to make that film i won't necessarily defend the the execution of the film that's all i want to say so because i think he wanted to get away from it to get away from 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 horror i think he wanted to distance himself from it that being said he went back and did 16 more scream films afterwards but <laughs> But. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could see it becoming very tedious, right, to be to be pigeonholed in any sort of way. But I think that there's ways out of that. You know, I mean, I, I, I think that Craven had such an interesting career because he changed the type of horror films that he did over time. I mean, they there there's there's different levels of horror that, you know, that he did. And some worked a whole lot better than others. But, you know, like I'm thinking of it and I don't particularly think that this is a great film, but, you know, he also did thrillers like with red eye you know and i don't remember what 2005 don't quote me on that but you know i mean i think that you know he went from the last house on the left which was brutal you know and then kind of had these different you know these different levels of horror and i think with carpenter more so even than craven i think carpenter was such a smart director and do i think that starman was well directed i mean sure i don't think there's anything glaring in terms of the way it was staged and the way it was shot or anything like that i just think it's such a lame movie and i did not know mike that he you know that this was more of like a money project for him and that makes total sense for me because i just didn't feel any of him in that film which may be why i i didn't like it um is because i didn't feel any of him in it so mike uh back to you First of all, the only thing I'm really going to like push back on Ashley on is when she said this is Carpenter's worst movie. Memoirs of Invisible Man and the Ward exist. So there's no way this is <laughs> Carpenter's yeah. worst movie. Okay, fair, 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 fair. Also in the mouth of madness, not a huge fan of that Ooh, one. But, oh, but, hey, oh, hey, yes, hey. There's, there's hey, some spicy we, no, Hey, hold on a second can, uh, Hold we on can, a second. We can, get into, we can get into that later. <laughs> oh, hey. I'll, I'll let you do music of, you know, rip apart, you know, Craven's choice, but, but leave in the mouth of madness. That's a, that, that has to be a discussion for another episode. You have to, oh, take easy. So, <laughs> sorry. I think you got, I think you just got ganged up on there. Oh, that's right. I, I am, I am fine standing on my own on so, that one, guys. Uh, so. and, and, 
And and I do. And let me just say this, Mike. I think it's a great choice because I think that that is a movie a lot of people do love. I mean, critics love that movie. I mean, it's I mean, I'm very much, I think, in the minority about my opinion about that film because, I mean, critics loved it. And, you know, like like you said, Bridges was nominated. And and I think that it, it is a movie a lot of people that are listening would really would really enjoy. So I do think it's a great pick. I think it's a, a random pick in the best way, if that makes any sense. The thing that I think is really interesting that you said, and I, I am going to talk about Music of the Heart here, um, because I had yeah, no idea this I, I'm not a fan of so much discussion about Music of the Heart. <laughs> we're, we're now a Music of the Heart podcast. Um, <laughs> look, I, I agree with you. I am not a fan of that movie. I, I, I think there's uh, so much wrong with that movie that even though, uh, as the listeners will know, I am a big boy band fan. Uh, so I'm Backstreet for life, but I do love NSYNC. That is not even a good NSYNC song as the theme song. Like, that's how badly that movie misfires. But the thing for me with Music of the Heart, and this is what I think is really interesting about what you just said, is... Music of the Heart is exactly what you're saying. I don't feel any Wes Craven in Music of the Heart. I don't feel his personality. I don't feel his fingerprints. I don't feel just any of what makes a Wes Craven movie a Wes Craven movie. I think it's fascinating that you said you don't feel John Carpenter in this movie because I feel his hands all over this movie. This movie feels like such a John Carpenter movie to me. And maybe that's just because Carpenter's such a uh, a unique idiot. I mean, we I think we can all agree that Carpenter is a an incredibly unique filmmaker. There are very few at any filmmakers that have ever been like him. And because of that, I think people respond to different things in different Carpenter movies. And so I think maybe it's just that what you respond to in a John Carpenter movie isn't there in Starman. And I can't even necessarily put into words what it is I respond to. But what I respond to in a Carpenter movie is there because I feel like this is such a Carpenter movie. This is, you know, you said you didn't even really know it was a work for hire and it didn't feel like John Carpenter. This is one to me that if I watched it and somebody didn't tell me who directed it and I knew nothing about it, I would be like, well, geez, that sure feels like a John Carpenter movie. And, and I'm not like disagreeing with you. And I don't even think there's an answer or a resolution to it. I just think that's a really interesting thing that you said, because I just see the movie so differently than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't. I, I mean, I, first of all, I think, Dana, you're really going to miss an opportunity here if you don't play a piece of Music of the Heart by NSYNC, just, just to make Mike mad that it's not Backstreet Boys. Are you kidding me? I'm getting ready um, to play think... the Night Court theme. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I And no, I, I'll be honest. It's been a while since I've seen this. So maybe I'm going to, I'm going to task myself. I'm going to put this one on my list to go back and, you know, and tr- slug through again. Um, um, and maybe maybe I'll like it more um, because I think you give a great defense for it. I just remember really I mean, it's kind of like what you were talking about earlier. There's movies that people like and then you watch it and you just go, really? You know, mm-hmm. and this this one is that for me. It's just really, you know, I mean, it, and for all of them, Jeff Bridges, Karen Allen, John Carpenter. I, I just I don't know. You know, nice creature comes from outer space and comes and makes us all feel better about ourselves. I mean, I give me give me E.T. and Reese's Pieces and, you know, a bicycle flying over the moon any day because that's what I want. I want my Spielberg like, you know, sweeping score. And now I will say the score in this is very, very good. But I want that John Williams sweeping score. You know, give me that. Don't give me John Carpenter sanitized with a PG rating. I just, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. All right, Mike, any, any closing thoughts on that? 
No, I think I think we've said everything. Okay. I mean, this is this is an interesting one to me because it is. I don't think we're arguing necessarily about the quality of the movie. It's just a, it's one of those perfect examples of how some movies just hit and some don't. Absolutely. So I, I I enjoyed this discussion, and I look forward to the Twitter response. Well, and I'm 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 actually looking forward to to rewatching Starman because. I am sort of in the middle just listening to both of your uh, sort of uh, dissections of the film. And I think you're both making interesting points. So I'm very interested just to see what happens when I when I rewatch it now, having been influenced by both of you. So I'm, I'm interested to this. This one will definitely be on the first uh, episode of, uh, you know, whatever, whatever we're going to call it when we when we do our follow up episodes. But that being said. Ashley, can I have your third and final pick of this episode? Absolutely. So, you know, last time I ended with one of my favorite comedies, which was was Fargo. And I wanted to include another one of my favorite comedies because, you know, Reality Bites, there's funny parts, but it gets into some deep stuff. And Stealing Beauty is not a comedy at all. So I wanted to include one. And so this is absolutely one of my very favorite films. And it is from one of my very favorite directors. It's not a controversial pick. I don't think we'll see Mike. Um, I don't (laughs) think it's a controversial pick at all. Um, And it is the 1998. So it's like right there. I'm sorry, 1999. It's right there on our, you know, our cutoff. um, Wes Anderson Rushmore starring the amazing Jason Schwartzman and his film debut and starting the Bill Murray, you know, renaissance that happened. Rushmore tells the story of a very precocious 15 year old student that attends Rushmore Academy. And it's just kind of this, like all Wes Anderson films, it's just kind of this interesting character study about people and about families and about interactions between one another and this absurd kind of heightened reality. I I have to say that this is a film, this was the first Wes Anderson film I ever saw. I did not see uh, Bottle Rocket until a few years later. You know, with the, um, what I mean by that is like with the Owen Wilson and the Wilson brothers, like, you know, all their writing, like I didn't see anything from that group um, until I saw Rushmore. And then I fell in love with Bottle Rocket and then I fell in love with Royal Tenenbaums and so on and so forth. And I just think it's an absolutely hilarious film. I had not seen this in a few years and my husband and I sat down to watch this because this is one of the few that were reviewed doing not reviewing but mentioning today recommending today that he actually really likes and i forgot how funny this movie is because the the humor is so subtle in this movie and it's beautiful in the way that all wes anderson movies are beautiful because it introduced us to his color palette of blues and greens and reds and all of his you know homage he pays to the french new wave with all those rapid transitions and it gave us our first slow motion ending and i can't say enough about this film. Um, I love it. I wish I could live inside a Wes Anderson film. And uh, that's that's basically it. I mean, I'm curious to see, Mike, if you hate this one, I'm just going to be like, what? So well, what do you guys think? Let me let me jump in here first real quick. I'm going to say something that's a little bit controversial, but not about Rushmore. Uh, so let me just unpack this real quick. I love Bottle Rocket. That is, you know, if I was to do a, a top 20 list, I think Bottle Rocket would land somewhere in the teens as far as favorite films and it's easily and, and and be wondering if you would disagree with me on this is it's easily the most straightforward narrative of any wes anderson film would you both agree on that point absolutely yeah okay so i have a really strange relationship with wes anderson films i i, I see i always saw i don't want to say uh, there there was i think monumental shifts 
into or, or the, the the metamorphosis that would become the standard Wes Anderson film happened at Bottle Rocket straightforward narrative Rushmore into Royal Tenenbaums into and and so on so on there we, we began to see the complete metamorphosis of Wes Anderson films to to the point where I just kind of stopped watching them they just weren't for me even though I respected them completely for for the artistic merit that he brought to them from narrative structures and things like that, the, the films just no longer appeal to me. Having said all of that, I think Rushmore is fantastic. I think it's a great movie, and I think it's, it is perfect Wes Anderson for me. I think Royal Tenenbaums didn't work for me, but Rushmore was, if Bottle Rockets is most straightforward, and then he gets into just complete Wes Anderson after Rushmore, I think Rushmore is the perfectly, the most perfectly balanced Wes Anderson film for me. That's my thoughts on it. I think the film is great. Great characters. Jason Schwartzman, never been better in anything he's done since. And I think he's a great actor. That being said, Mike, your thoughts? So I I love this recommendation because unfortunately, given that it's the 20th Century Movie Club, there's only so many Wes Anderson movies we can talk about. But it kind of opens the door to just talk about Wes Anderson on the whole because he's such an important filmmaker. Rest assured, Ashley, I don't hate this movie. Um, (laughs) But I, to a certain extent... What you said, Dana, kind of hits the nail on the head for me as well. Wes Anderson is a filmmaker that I admire more than I like. His A lot of his movies are just not for me. So for me, the base thing with Rushmore is there's really only two Wes Anderson movies that I just unabashedly, unequivocally love. And that's Royal Tenenbaums, uh, which Dana is interesting that you said that didn't work for you because that's the one of his movies that just 100% works for me. And then it's a bit of an outlier, but I still think it's one of his best is also Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is just delightful. And I love that movie. So I like Rushmore. Uh, I haven't seen it for quite a while. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have anything negative to say about it. There's there's no way I'm going to critique the movie because I think the movie is incredibly well done. It's incredibly well put together. I think just for a certain reason, Wes Anderson movies have a tendency to not work on me. You know, we mentioned Kicking and Screaming earlier, and I recommended that in a past episode. I've always kind of gravitated towards uh, Noah Baumbach's movies more, and I bring him up because they work together so closely on on several different movies. Uh, I've always gravitated to his movies a little bit more, even though they tend to be a little more cynical. I've always kind of liked him better, and it may just be a matter of fact that I saw Kicking and Screaming before I saw Bottle Rocket. I don't know. But for whatever reason, Wes Anderson movies tend to not work on me. I always see them. I always admire them. People ask me what I think of them. I'm always like, oh, they're very good. But they're not a kind of movie. They're very often not movies that I am thinking about putting on and revisiting. And, and Rushmore definitely falls into that category. Uh, even Tenenbaums, I don't revisit very often. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox is the only one that I've really seen several times. So I certainly am not going to disagree with the recommendation. I'm certainly not going to critique the movie. I just am maybe not the target audience for Wes Anderson for whatever reason. You know, I, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, Wes Anderson is a director for me, much like uh, Tim Burton is. I think that he had a heyday and then he kept doing the same thing and it got stale uh, the same way that Tim Burton did in a lot of ways with, you know, like if Edward Scissorhands for me is Burton's height, I think that this era for Anderson was was his height. You know, I I absolutely adore Rushmore. I adore the Royal Tenenbaums. Again, I do think as, as well, Dana, I think that's interesting that it didn't work for you because I think that's a really perfect film. But my favorite Wes Anderson is kind of a random one that a lot of people, um, like my husband thinks I'm nuts. Um, and it's Life Aquatic. 
erotic. That is my absolute favorite Wes Anderson film. I cry every time that stupid shark flies past the the submarine at the end of that movie. I mean, I think that movie is so incredibly absurd and ridiculous and moving in the best way. And that's what I like about Anderson. And he does it in this. You know, what a weird movie Rushmore is, you know, where it's exploring the friendship between a 15-year-old boy and a 50-year-old man. I mean, I think it's a really, it's a really absurd storyline and is not straightforward, Dana, like you were talking about. But I think that's what's amazing. When Anderson is on, that's what he does well, is he takes absurdity and he makes it loving. Like, I mean, it's just you can't, I mean, you can't help but feel good when you watch him when he's at his best. And I, I love Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. You know, but I'll be very honest, I hate Grand Budapest Hotel. I mean, there's a couple in there that I really, I did not like Isle of Dogs. I mean, there's a couple in there that I really am not a big fan of, but I would say really from Rushmore through Life Aquatic with a couple others maybe spliced in there. I just think he's great. And I think he's one of the smartest filmmakers because he is one of those filmmakers and there's not many that create entire worlds that are these hyper realized and hyper um just just hyper absurd worlds that you 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 like to return to when it's done correctly. And that's why I compare him to Burton. Um, I don't know if that's a really random comparison, because obviously their filmmaking and their stories are different. But um, and then the last thing I'll say is you mentioned Noah Baumbach, because we were talking about kicking and screaming. I know it is out of our purview. But you know, the squid and the whale is one of my very favorite films, which was, you know, Noah Baumbach's in 2005. That is one of my very favorite films ever absolutely love that and my brother lives in new york and we went to the museum and you know laid underneath the big squid and the big whale and it's you know i think that's such a amazing film so i think both of them are great completely different but uh i think rushmore's i mean it's a hilarious movie if you've never seen it it's absolutely hilarious and it's not you know slapstick hilarious it's it's smart funny so which i like i'd like to just say that something you when you bring up the comparison between burton and anderson they clearly make very different films, but right. they're both directors that you, you know, Mike, like you said, when you see a John Carpenter film, you know, it's a John Carpenter film. I don't think there's anyone that will mistake a Tim Burton film for any other director. And I don't think there's anyone, especially later Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson films that will mistake his films for anyone else. When you, you sit down, you watch one of these movies, you know, right away who's, who's got their hands all over this film. So I just think that's interesting that you brought up Burton and Anderson together, even though they're very different, but they're so uniquely them. Yeah. And, and I mean, music as well. I mean, if we're going to talk about Wes Anderson, we have to talk about music. And whether you like his films or not, his movie soundtracks are just absolutely incredible. I mean, even the Darjeeling Limited. I mean, that's a fantastic soundtrack. Royal Tenenbaums, fantastic soundtrack. Rushmore, fantastic soundtrack. I mean, he he is smart with the way that he uses music in his films. And, and I really, as a, a person who enjoys music a lot, I mean, I really enjoy that about his films. And I think he's kept relevant for new generations. Some artists that a lot of people maybe otherwise wouldn't have uh wouldn't have listened to i mean you know nick drake elliot smith you know there's a lot of people on there that that you know some people like my brother's age and younger were never really exposed to unless they went and sought them out because they got obsessed with radio which is gross and so i think that it's great that when they liked his films they also discovered all of this music that the rest of us have been listening to for a really long time mike any uh, closing thoughts on uh, just just one thing to add uh, to kind of call something out that people should should watch. If you're uh, if you're not familiar with Patrick Willem's YouTube channel, he's one of the best 
film essayist working right now during the Oscar. I tweeted out one of his one of his videos, but he did a video uh, that's not an essay. It's a it's a parody film. It's called What If Wes Anderson Directed the X-Men? And it is hilarious. So I really encourage people to go on YouTube and check it out because it's really funny. Other than that, I don't have much to add. I do think Rush Hour. Actually, I guess I do have one other quick thing to add. Uh, so people that have been following us on Twitter, and I love your feedback, but I've been getting some some grief over my dislike of comedies. And uh, I kind of <laughs> wanted to address something because uh, Ashley brought up when I said I don't like comedies. She said you recommend a real genius, which is a beloved comedy. And I think Rushmore is very funny, too. And this might offend or insult some people. But what I don't like about a lot of comedies is I feel like I like comedies about smart people doing smart things. And a lot of comedies, I feel like, are about dumb people doing dumb things. And Rushmore definitely fits in these smart people doing smart things, almost too smart for their own good. That's where a lot of the, the humor comes from is is uh, Jason Schwartzman's character just thinks he's so smart and everything, you know, and, and I really gravitate to that sense of comedy. That's why I liked Real Genius. So Rushmore definitely fits in that category. Like I said, even though I don't think Wes Anderson movies always work on me, it's a solid, it's a good comedy. It's funny. Um, do watch it. Don't don't let me kind of being hesitant about it uh, dissuade you because it's, it's a good movie to watch. Not, not to not to continue on about the but the film. But, you know, you know, you said you said that, uh, you know, Jason Schwartzman, his character's name is Max in the movie, right? Yes. Yeah. OK, so Max. Max has, when he's at the Rushmore Academy, he's got everyone fooled. And what I really liked about the film is when he is, uh, let's just say this, I don't want to get too much into spoilers, but there's a, there's a, there's a, for a time there, he attends public school. And I just thought that was really interesting, the, the sort of the, the juxtaposition between when he was at Rushmore and when he had to attend a public high school. I just, for me, that, that was, some of that really resonated with me because when he's, when he's trying to use the, 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 the payphone, it was just every, every little thing about that was, was wonderful. Well, and you know, uh, fun fact, that was based off of, uh, both Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson's experience because Owen Wilson was kicked out of a private school very similar to what Rushmore is based on. And, you know, and then uh, Wes Anderson attended here a school very similar to that. And when they filmed also a Houston connection, they filmed here in Houston on um, Rushmore. The set was this Catholic high school. It's called St. John's School and Grover Cleveland. The public school in the movie is actually the public school here in Houston, um, Lamar High School. And what's interesting is they are actually right across the street from each other. Oh, no kidding. Um, and so I think that's just, you know, those of us who live here, you know, I think that's an interesting, you know, an interesting tidbit, which I did not realize when I was watching Rushmore. I have not watched it since we moved here to Houston. And um, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's Lamar High School. And and it is. I, I looked it up and it is. So I, I think that's just an interesting little uh, little fun fact there. And, and I agree with you, Mike, about the comedies. I don't like watching dumb people during doing dumb things. But I would uh, say I don't know necessarily if real genius is smart people doing smart Things. So I'm just going to throw that out there. I wasn't on that episode, but they're going to Caltech, Ashley. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just going to throw that out there. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mike to uh, round out the episode with the final pick. So I have got to uh, get on brand and get back on my bullshit here. So I am <laughs> going to recommend a uh, I'm going to recommend one of, I think, the all time pinnacles of the martial arts genre. I think it's a movie that most people consider to be a classic of, of the genre and 
it's also starring an actor who is missing from our list so far. So I want to plug that hole. And what I'm going to recommend is uh, 1994's Drunken Master 2, starring Jackie Chan. For those who haven't seen it, Drunken Master 2 is a, a long awaited sequel to a 1978 film that Jackie did called Drunken Master. And for those who don't know about the history of Jackie Chan, I don't want to go too deep in the weeds on it here, but he started as a stuntman in the early 70s. In fact, you can even see him uh, get his ass kicked by Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon. And after uh, Bruce Lee's unfortunate passing, uh, the studios uh, tried to turn him into the next Bruce Lee. And it just didn't take because uh, Chan came from the Peking Opera and the movies that he loved were less hardcore martial arts and more Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin movies. And so in the late 70s, that was when he finally started to get to where he could make that transition. And the first Drunken Master is one of the ones where he really makes that transition to the physical comedy mixed with martial arts that he's so well known for. And Drunken Master 2 comes almost, you know, a little more than 15 years later. He plays a uh, a Chinese, martial arts fans will know this name, he plays a Chinese folk hero named Wong Fei Hung. And I do apologize if we have any Chinese listeners, if I butcher any of these names, I apologize. You are welcome to reach out to me and tell me how to correctly pronounce them. Um, but he plays a Chinese folk hero named Wong Fei Hung, who has been as instrumental in Chinese cinema as, as any person ever. There are over 80 Wong Fei Hung movies. Jet Li's played him. Uh, basically any actor you can think of who's a martial artist in, in Hong Kong at some point played Wong Fei Hung. And uh, in this particular one, it's much more comedy oriented. Wong Fei Hung is a master of a style called drunken boxing, wherein he gets stronger the more he drinks. Uh, he ends up running afoul. I won't get into all the, the spoilers and stuff, but he ends up running afoul of of some colonialists, uh, much amusing fighting, much amusing uh, work with props commences and it culminates in a, a, again, not a spoiler because all martial arts movies end with a fight, but it culminates in a seven minute fight that took four months to film. Each day got them three seconds of usable film. And it is uh, really kind of one of the, the the pinnacles, if not the pinnacle of, of martial arts fights and really what Jackie could do if he had the resources. And back in the early 90s, when he was truly at the height of his game, uh, he ended up not starting the movie's director, but he did direct that last fight. And it the movie in and of itself is is good. It's funny. It's got some silly comedy, but the, that last fight alone makes it worth watching. So this one, I think, is is one of the all time greats for Jackie Chan movies. I have not seen it. I've heard of it. I'm also very familiar with with Jackie Chan. One of the things that I think is absolutely amazing is that the man is still alive. And by that, I mean, Mike, I wonder if you could touch on this a little bit more. This man in every film that he's ever done, has done his own stunts, correct? Uh, up until up until recently. So he's in his 60s now, and he uses a lot more stunt doubles now because he just can't move like he used to. But what you're really referencing, Dana, is from about the 1978 period up to about 2000. And yes, he did his own stunts. And one of the great things about Jackie Chan movies, especially from that that period, is during the end credits, there are always outtakes of all the stunts that go wrong and all the injuries. He has broken 
more bones than uh, anybody really should. And I don't want to say that like, this is great because it's not that aspirational, right? You are right. It's lucky the guy's alive, but he's made those decisions. We get to benefit from the joy of, of watching him do these things. And there are, uh, this is not his most stunt heavy film. It's a little more pure martial arts for his stunt heavy films. I would recommend the police story series. And, and that's definitely a stay tuned for the movie club. But there are some of those stunts in this. There's one where he falls off hot coals and has to push his way through all the hot coals that you know in the outtakes you're seeing he's really doing um and so it is a miracle that he is still alive and still with us okay uh like i said i haven't seen it let me ask you this though would this be the only like pure jackie chan film i've saw and i know i'm gonna catch some 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 flack for this is rumble in the bronx that's the and i actually saw that in the theater and i really enjoyed that film but if i was to go back and sort of jump into the filmography of Jackie Chan. Would Drunken Master and Drunken Master 2 be a good jumping off point? Or would you recommend Police Story? What what would your recommendation be as far as taking it all in, but in what order? The one nice thing about a lot of Hong Kong cinema in the 80s and 90s is even though there were a lot of sequels, a lot of times those sequels were only tangentially related to one another. So even though it's called Drunken Master 2, there's literally nothing in it that you need to have seen Drunken Master 1 for. And in fact, in a lot of ways, the stuff that Drunken Master 1 does, this perfect. So you I Drunken Master is great, but you can skip it if you want to and just go to this one. This is a, a good buy in point. Police Story is a good buy in point. This is a good buy in point. Those are the two that I would start. Actually, Rumble in the Bronx is also a nice buy in point. I will say and I, I could go on for hours and hours and hours about how the Weinsteins butchered all these Hong Kong movies that they bought and imported. That's a po- different podcast for a different day. Um, but what I will say is of all the Jackie Chan ones that the Weinsteins bought, this is the only one they gave a major theatrical release to. And this did get a major theatrical release 10 years later, but it got a major theatrical release in the U.S. Okay. So obviously there is a sense that this is a good starting point for Jackie Chan. All right, Ashley, have you seen The Drunken Master 2? I love this movie. I awesome. think it is such a fantastic movie. Um, I love Jackie Chan. I love Kung Fu movies. Um, I, I love martial arts movies. I think I think it's wonderful. I think it's one of the best that's out there. I think it's really funny. I think it's really well done. Um, and I, I just think it's a lot of fun. It's one of those movies you watch just to, you know, just to have a, a good time. Um, and more so than anything, I think what's sad about this film is this is Jackie Chan at his absolute best. I think what we did here to him but what we did to him here in 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 the states when he tried to kind of conform himself to what a quote-unquote western movie star was supposed to be i think he lost a lot of what made him so charming because people started putting him in these in these roles where they were kind of pigeonholing him so like i'm talking about the rush hours and i'm talking about the shanghai nights with owen wilson like i don't think that is jackie chan i think that he's fine in those and there's some funny pieces but he is at his best in this movie and and i think it's unfortunate because I think if we would have allowed him to be that and be the star of all of his own films rather than sharing it with these quote unquote comedians and Chris Tucker and Owen Wilson, I think he would have had an even 
bigger and more prolific career here as he did elsewhere in the world. But um, I have nothing bad to say about it. I think I think it is awesome. And if you haven't seen it, I would say go watch it tonight because it's it's really fun. And if you haven't seen it in a long time, I would say go back and rewatch it. And I actually just wrote it down as a another I have a spreadsheet I've been keeping from our our time together. And it's another one that I wrote down of a of a rewatch because I, I think it's I think it's great. I think it's a fantastic choice. And you're definitely back on brand, Mike. It's important to brand recognition is important. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and now we don't need movie court anymore, Dana. If this were movie court, we've just settled. So it's fine. The case has been dismissed. Absolutely. So. Excellent. Perfect. Ashley, if you could please share with the listeners uh, the best way they could find your recommendations for this week's episode. Yeah. So if you would like to watch Reality Bites, it is uh, available on all of your various movie renting platforms. It also is streaming for free if you have a Stars subscription. Uh, Stealing Beauty, and for- unfortunately, is not streaming for free anywhere, but it is available to to rent on iTunes, Vudu, all of your, your regular means, you know, whatever you prefer. And Rushmore is the same. You can uh, rent it on any of the available movie renting platforms. And both are actually really cheap. They're not your normal amount on iTunes. I got both for $1.99. Awesome. So, so yeah, so there's a sale. Okay. And Mike, your selections? So Stop Making Sense is uh, if you have a Prime subscription, it's streaming on Amazon Prime ad free. That's the way I would recommend to watch it. If you don't have a Prime subscription, it's also streaming on Tubi and Vudu ad supported. So you can watch it with ads. If you have Prime, that's the way to watch it because the ads really break up the flow of the concert. But it's better that you see it somehow. Starman is not streaming for free anywhere, but it is available on all major rental and purchase uh, streaming services, Amazon, Google Play, Apple. Uh, also, I mentioned it, but like I said, Shout Factory just released a beautiful Blu-ray of it. So if you like the movie, make sure you uh, you go out and you pick that up because that's definitely worth it if you like the movie. Drunken Master is only streaming one place. It's streaming on Netflix, which is great for accessibility, but it's a little bit best of times, worst of times. It is the uh, Cantonese language version, which is good because the the Merrimax Weinstein dub was uh, not great. Jackie did dub his own voice, so that's good, but it was not great. So it is the Cantonese version. However, and I don't know why Netflix did this, the subtitles are the closed caption subtitles. So for those... For those who don't know what that means, it means you're going to get little headings that say crowd noise popping up on the screen or uh, fight sounds or stuff like that. So it's not the ideal way to watch it. But honestly, as much as I love Drunken Master 2, we're not dealing with the Godfather here. What you're watching this for is the amazing things that Jackie Chan does. So I think, you know, you can power through it and, and you get used to it after a while because I rewatched it last week and that's how I watched it. And eventually your brain acclimates. But I wish there was a and to be honest with you, there is not a definitive version of Drunken Master 2 available anywhere in the world. Every release it's ever had has had some sort of drawback. So I'm just really hoping that somebody somewhere with some clout buys up all the global rights and does a a full-blown remaster on it. But until then, Netflix is what we got. All right, Ashley, if people want to follow you on social media. You can find me on Twitter at at Ashley Schlafly. Perfect. And Mike? 
I am on Twitter at Hibachi Justice. And as always, uh, I'm also on Letterboxd at Hibachi Justice, where you will find the continually updating list of the 20th Century Movie Club, where you can find all the movies we've recommended, as well as uh, I've updated it so you can find what episodes we recommend them and who the person recommending them was. So if you decide that, you know, as you can see, Ashley and I tend to have different tastes. So if you decide you like one of us or, or the other more, you can look and see who made the recommendations for things that you might you might enjoy so uh follow me there and check out that list absolutely and if you want to follow the show uh the you can find the show on twitter at dana buckler show you can find it on instagram at the dana buckler show you can always email us with questions or comments at the dana buckler show at gmail.com so thank you both for being on volume six of the 20th century movie club thank no you problem. excellent and my name is dana buckler and thank you so much for listening